Alright, well we are going to wrap up a series this morning. We've been, um, we've, for four weeks, we've been in a series on idolatry, which I think probably for all of us at first felt like, well, that'll be interesting to study, but that's not really something that, you know, I'm struggling with. Um, but I hope that as we've gone through it, we have all been able to, able to identify areas in which um, we are putting other things in front of God. See, idolatry is when we put anything before God. And we've looked at, we've looked at, this morning we'll look at the fourth category. We've kind of looked at categories where in our lives we can put things before God. We looked at um, putting something before God in our identity. In, in other words, deciding that, that I can decide what defines me or identifies me rather than what God says identifies me. We're made in His image. We can put things before God in our affections. Pastor Matt uh, came and preached that week and, and talked about um, the picture of, of the marriage relationship and how the Bible says that's a picture of our relationship with God and how we can be unfaithful to God in the same way that, um, that in, a, in a marriage relationship we could be unfaithful. We looked last week about how we can put things before God in our loyalties about where our citizenship lies, where we really belong, um, who we are, who or what we are most loyal to. And th- this morning we're going to look at how we can put things before God in our dependence. What do you depend on? Um, and, and the, The word that we're going to use that the Bible talks about, you, you may or may not think of this as the idol of dependence, but it's greed. And I want to read to you a summary of a short story. I, I, I don't have time to read the whole thing, um, but a summary of a short story about the corrupting power of greed. It's a, it's a story by Leo Tolstoy. It may be familiar to many of you. It's called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? How many of you are familiar with this story? Okay, now I feel bad. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read the summary. Um, So I'm going to spoil it for you. All right. An elder sister from the city visits her younger sister, the wife of a peasant farmer in the village. In the midst of their visit, the two of them get into an argument about whether the city life or the peasant lifestyle is preferable. The elder sister suggests that city life boasts better clothes, good things to eat and drink, and various entertainments such as the theater. The younger sister replies that though peasant life may be tough, she and her husband are free and will always have enough to eat and are not tempted by the devil to indulge in such worldly pursuits. Pahom, the husband of the younger sister, enters the debate and suggests that the charm of the peasant life is that the peasant has no time to let nonsense settle in his head. The one drawback of peasant life, he declares, is that the peasant does not have enough land. If I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. The devil, overhearing this boast, decides to give Pahom his wish, seducing him with the extra land that he thinks will give him security. His first opportunity to gain extra land comes when a lady in the village decides to sell her 300 acres. His fellow peasants try to arrange for the purchase themselves as part of a commune, but the devil sows discord among them and individual peasants begin to buy land. Pahom obtains 40 acres of his own. This pleases him initially, but soon neighboring peasants allow their cows to stray into his meadows and their horses among his corn, and he must seek justice from the district court. 
Not only does he fail to receive recompense for the damages, but also he ruins his reputation among his former friends and neighbors. His extra land does not bring him security. Hearing a rumor about more and better farmland elsewhere, he decides to sell his land and move his family to a new location. There he obtains 125 acres and is 10 times better off than he was before, and he's very pleased. However, he soon realizes that he could make a better profit with more land on which to sow wheat. He makes a deal to obtain 1,300 acres from a peasant in financial difficulty for 1,000 rubles and has all but clinched it when he hears a rumor about the land of the Bashkirs. Here, a tradesman tells him a man can obtain land for less than a penny an acre simply by making friends with the chiefs. Fueled by the desire for more, cheaper, and better land, Bahom seeks directions for the land of the Bashkirs and leaves on a journey to obtain the land that he thinks he needs. On arrival, he distributes gifts to the Bashkir leaders and finds them courteous and friendly. He explains his reasons for being there, and after some deliberation, they offer him whatever land he wants for 1,000 rubles. Bahom is pleased but concerned. He wants boundaries, deeds, and official sanction to give him the assurance he needs that they or their children will never reverse their decision. The Bashkirs agree to this arrangement, and a deal is struck. Bahom can have all the land that he can walk around in a day for 1,000 rubles. The one condition is that if he does not return on the same day to the spot at which he began, the money will be lost. The night before his fateful walk, Pahom plans his strategy. He will try to encircle 35 miles of land and then sell the poorer land to the peasants at a profit. When he awakens the next day, he is met by the man whom he thought was the chief of the Bashkirs, but whom he recognizes as the peasant who had come to his old home to tell him of lucrative land deals available elsewhere. He looks again and realizes he is speaking with the devil himself. He dismisses this meeting as merely a dream and goes about on his walk. Bahom starts well, but he, begin, he tries to encircle too much land. And by midday, he realizes that he has, he has tried to create too big a circuit. Though afraid of death, he knows that his only chance is to complete the circuit. There's plenty of land, he says to himself, but will God let me live on it? As the sun comes down, Pahom runs with all his remaining strength to the spot where he began. Reaching it, he sees the chief laughing and holding his sides. He remembers his dream and breathes his last. Pahom's servant picks up the spade with which Pahom had been marking his land and digs a, digs a grave in which to bury him. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Pretty sad story. Um, my, my dad read me that story one time as a, as a kid. And, uh, and it is a, a powerful reminder, a powerful example of, of how much is enough. Famously, I think it was John Rockefeller said, you know, when asked, how much is enough? And he said, just one more dollar. Perfectly illustrating the point that there's not an amount that is, an amount that is enough. The key here is who or what we depend on, we worship. That, that, can, that can be a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. Let me say that again. Who or what we depend on, we worship. In some way. That, that, that may not mean that we bow down and pray to whatever the object is that we depend on, but it is an act of worship to depend on something or someone. That's, that's why it's such a big deal in Scripture that we depend on God. 
God, God brings that up to His people all the time. The Bible has a lot to say about greed. Um, let me read just a, um, a whole bunch of verses that talk about greed. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or emptiness. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be contented with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice the, the juxtaposition, you know, those, those two phrases put next to each other. Be content with what you, what you have because God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, that's, that's how you can be free of that. Um, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Another proverb, chapter 15, verse 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Luke 12:15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How many of us are tempted by or you know people who it seems like their entire life is consumed by acquiring more or something or, or whatever. Ephesians 5.5 5, For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Right in that, right in that verse, Scripture calls greed idolatry. Colossians 3.5 Therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Later in that same chapter, verses 15, and 15 to 17, give the answer. Let the peace of Christ, to which, you were, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We're going to circle back to that, that verse there here at the end. But greed, the Bible obviously here says a lot about greed. Greed is about a lot more than just money. Most often we, we equate, think, you know, when we think about greed, we think of money. We think of, uh, we think of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, you know. Excellent, you know, he does this with his bony fingers and it's all about acquiring more. Or maybe, maybe you think of, um, um, Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, who like won't even heat the office in winter. Um, you know, it's like their bone, their fingers are so stiff they can't even write the numbers, but he won't, he won't spend the money for coal for the, oh man, that was real close. Can't take me anywhere. Alright. It's just, you know what, that's actually why, that's why to wear khakis. Cause you know, coffee, coffee stains won't even, uh, I didn't drink enough of this before my message, so. There. Snap the lid closed. Um, but, but, you know, when we think of greed, we often equate it with some, some character like that that's, that's completely consumed with money. You know, they're counting their stacks of coins or, or what have you. But greed can be so much more than that. Greed is a belief that if I acquire enough of something, even if it's at others' expense, 
I will not find myself at the mercy of someone else ever. See, greed is, is really about power. It's about, it's about a desire to place myself in a position where I'm never under someone else's power. I'm somehow self-sufficient. I want to look at a, at a passage in Scripture where, where God very powerfully um, teaches His people about dependence. Okay, I, I, and, and I, I don't want to. I want you to see the connection between dependence and greed. I want you to see those as opposites. Greed says I depend on no one. Dependence say I must depend on someone. Uh, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. <clears throat> We're going to read uh, most of this. Um, it, it's a. It's probably a familiar story, um, but it's a powerful story. This is so. This this follows. This is just a couple of chapters after um, God, with a mighty hand, leads His nation out of Egypt. He, um, he you know, they, we have the, the pillars of, of cloud and the pillars of fire, which is interesting. As we've as we talked in the first message in this series, when God appeared to His people, He He did not give them an image that they could make of Himself. He only appeared to them in a, in a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, which I think is like that. That's interesting because the images that they could carve and worship, they couldn't carve an image that looked like God because he purposely did not appear to them in a way that that would work. <clears throat> so uh, God splits the Red Sea. Wipes out the Egyptian army. Um, they think they're going to die of thirst, and so uh, God provides water for them. Uh, but what else do you need besides water? Remember the rule of threes. You can survive three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food, theoretically. I mean, you're going to be real hungry, but but you but you won't die as long as you have air and water. Okay, so, so he, uh, he, he gives them water, and uh, before long, guess what? They're hungry, naturally. You've got a whole nation of people, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, in the wilderness, in the Sinai Desert. They're hungry. It says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. Now, these are like Arabic words. Um, it doesn't actually mean sin in the way that we would use sin, although it probably is an interesting parallel. Um, <clears throat> which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and all the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Your grumbling against the Lord. They thought they were complaining about Moses and Aaron, but he said, no, 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 you think you're complaining about us. You're complaining about God. We, he makes this point, we didn't bring you out of Egypt. God brought you out of Egypt. And we didn't lead you to this place. God led us to this place. He says, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever had gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Uh, you may be familiar with the rest of that story, um, but, but, but I, w- I want to read to you a, a note on this passage from Charles Spurgeon, who is uh, a great preacher from the 1800s that I often refer to. He says, It seems to us a difficult thing to supply food for the hundreds of thousands or the millions who were in the wilderness. But difficult as that was, the supply of food was not so difficult as the education. To train that mob of slaves into a nation under discipline, to lift up those who had been in bondage and make them fit to enjoy national privileges, this was the Herculean task Moses had to perform. And their God, who loved the children of Israel and chose them, undertook to teach them. And he used their food as part of the means of their education. Animals are often taught through their food. And the Lord, who knew of what a coarse nature Israel was composed, took care to teach them by every means, not only by the higher and more spiritual, by the typical and symbolic, but he also taught them by their hunger and by their thirst. He wanted them to know him. If they knew God, they would know all else. For after all, the proper study of mankind is God. And when one knows his God, he knows himself. But if he thinks that he knows himself while he does not know his God, he is greatly mistaken. Uh, that, uh, to me, that is a, that is a powerful, um, 
a powerful comment. If he thinks he knows himself and he does not know God, he is mistaken. Um, I have some notes on, on this passage here. You see, the, from the story about the manna from heaven, I really want to key into this part at the end where, where God said, every day I'm going to give this to you, and it's going to be enough. Just trust me, you'll have enough. You'll have enough in the morning, you'll have enough at night. You don't need to keep some over until morning except, except the, you know, for the Sabbath, because we're going to rest. You're going to collect it the day before, cook it, and you're not going to have to go out and collect or cook that day. Like, it, it, was, it was on purpose. God provided extra the day before so that they could rest. He's teaching them. He's, he's trying to reaffirm this, the, the Sabbath concept. He's trying to reaffirm dependence on Him. And so, He tells them, there's going to be enough every morning. But what did they do? They tried to keep it. They tried to get extra and keep it until morning. And what happened? Through God's providence, it it got rotten and was disgusting. God had to teach them dependence on Him. This is, I love that point that Spurgeon points out that they were a nation of slaves. They had, they had just been brought out of a situation where they never had enough. Not really. I mean, they did have food. But they couldn't, they could not raise, you know, as they used to say in Britain, raise their station. You know, they, they, they had a, a, a spot that was at the bottom of the totem pole and they weren't going to move from there. And so their desire to acquire more so that they wouldn't be at the mercy of someone else was very strong. And God had to break them of that and teach them, depend on me, trust me, I will provide. When I make a promise to my people, I will keep it. Um, And so it was a difficult lesson. Trust, here's another thing. Trust is harder with needs than it is with wants. Someday, I would love to have a sailboat. Alright, I'll just tell you that. I am deeply terrified of deep, dark water. Um, I watch whale documentaries and they, they scare me a little bit. There was some horror film called Blackfish. Did you guys see this? They, they, they mislabeled it as a documentary, but it was a horror film. I don't understand. But, it, but for some reason, sailing just like, I want to do it someday. And so, but, but that's a want. I don't need a sailboat. And so, I can trust that maybe someday God will bless me with a sailboat. But, but that's a want. And so it's easy for me to just say, I don't, I don't need that. If God chooses to give it to me someday, that'd be really cool. And I can leave it at that. But you see, when it's, when it's my, what's the, what's the phrase we use? Daily bread. You know, that, that's, this is the story that we get the daily bread concept from. Because God gave them bread each day that was only enough for that day. When it's literally the thing that's going to keep me alive, it is a lot harder to trust someone other than me for that. You see, when, it, when, it's, when it's the thing that's going to keep me or my family alive, I feel like, well, I've got I've to take the reins of that one. And I've got to make sure, now don't get me wrong, it's important that I do everything in my power 
to provide for my family. Jesus said that, that someone who doesn't take care of their family is worse than an unbeliever. Like that's, it's like a real serious concept. You take care of your family. Um, <clears throat> but I have to recognize that the provision actually comes from the Lord. This is one of the reasons, and I'm really, I, I don't want this sermon to be about money because greed is about way more than money. It's really about power and it's about dependence. But this is also the reason, this is the same concept of why one of our values as a, as a church is that we hold God's gifts with open hands. That's the opposite of greed. That, that all the things that I have, God has given to me, and if, and if God chooses that someone else needs them more than me, I'm holding those things that God gave me with open hands so that, so that I, can, I can give them to people that need them. This is the reason for the concept, the concept of the tithe that God taught his people. That, you know, this was later, later in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. He taught them this. One of the ways to demonstrate I depend, I trust and depend on God for my provision is that he taught them to, you know, when you harvest something, you take, you harvest everything, take a tenth of that, and, and you, you give that to the Lord. And that was partly how, how the Lord provided for, um, the priests and his, his servants in that way, but also, it was a way of teaching the people that, that is a powerful statement. When you, when you take, when you take what you worked really hard for, and then you give some of it away right off the top, you're saying, I trust that what God gave me is enough, and I trust that if God tells me to give some of this away, I can do that, and God will still provide for me. It's the same concept of, of dependence, learning dependence. Um, and, and like I said, I, I, don't want, I don't want you to feel like this, this sermon is about money because it's really not. It's about learning to depend on God for all of the things that we need. All right, I want to turn to one more passage. And, um, and believe it or not, this is actually kind of the main passage, and we're closing in on, like, you know, the home stretch here. But I'm going to land the plane. Not immediately, because that would be a crash landing. Uh, turn, to, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching. This is, um, this is part of the sermon that he, what we famously call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that, that starts in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Jesus is up on the mountainside, and he's teaching um, through chapter 7. To the people, and this is this is where we have the, the highest concentration of Jesus um, teaching about a lot of different categories. <clears throat> Starting in verse twenty-four, he says, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money." It's interesting. He's talking about servitude. And describes the masters as God and money. Now wait a minute. If I'm, if I have a, a, if I have the attitude of greed, then I thought I'd be serving myself, right? Because I'm trying to put me on the throne of my heart, and I'm trying to depend only on myself, right? Aren't I worshiping myself? Well, not really. You see, money becomes when when you look at the greedy person who's in control of who are they in control of the money or is the money actually controlling them it's interesting because it really in the end they become slaves to it you cannot serve god and money 
And it goes directly from that into a section about being anxious. And I would like to submit that these are purposely placed next to each other because the one is the answer to the other. He says, therefore, and that's the word right there, that's how we know there's a connection. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's actually referring there to this time in the Exodus. God provided what they would drink. God provided what they would eat. And the Bible says that that miraculously in the 40 years that they wandered throughout the desert, what happened? Their clothes and their sandals didn't wear out like they should have. God provided for them in all of those areas. Those are your, your basic needs. I mean, like, if, if you're in a bad financial spot, you should, you know, you have to prioritize, like, there's some bills I'm not going to be able to pay. Which ones do you pay first? Food, clothing, shelter. Those come first. And then credit cards are way down at the bottom of the list. Um, God provided for the most basic needs. Do not be anxious about what you will eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what will you wear. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, of not much, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to this span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what will we wear? Hear that, Kara? Don't be anxious about what are we going to wear? I'm just kidding. (laughs) For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Uh, a couple of a couple of comments on this passage as we as we kind of wrap up. The birds and flowers. He, he uses the birds for example of, of food. Now I can spend a lot of time here because I'm a bird nerd, um, but I'm going to try not to. Um, there is no bird that stores up food anywhere. They they don't do it. Not even the most domestic birds, chickens. I mean, like they, they don't. What do they do? Every morning they go out and they just start looking for bugs or corn or whatever's out there, picking at the ground. They're not the birds and the flowers. I mean, flowers. Flowers literally don't do anything. They just grow. Okay. They are not capable of moral judgments. They cannot choose. Here's where I'm going with that. Birds, flowers. They can't choose to try to earn God's favor. But God makes provision for His creation, for all of His creation. And and this is the point. To have an attitude that I can only depend on God if I somehow meet His standard and and make Him like me better 
if if I'm good enough, then I can depend on God. But if I'm not good enough, I'm going to have to figure it out myself. That doesn't work because God provides for birds and grass. Those things don't work for God. They they don't they don't they don't earn His favor in any way. They're not capable of moral judgments, but God provides. He, he makes this, this comment about Gentiles, which, which in, in the New Testament, Gentiles can generally be used to understand just unbelievers. These were people outside of the Jewish um, nation that just they didn't know about God, generally speaking. And it's interesting, um, Gentiles find their needs provided for even though they don't seek God. It says here, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God provides for His followers and even the ones that don't follow Him. God makes rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And this comment here, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. To some extent, we need to accept the things we cannot change in that in that it's not my job to take control of, of all of these things. The future is God's. I, I, don't, I don't control the future. I have no impact on the future. Um, okay. I mean, to some extent, you, you make choices today and you might have to, you might, there might be consequences of those choices tomorrow. Um, but for the things you can't change, those belong to God. Trust Him with those things. We we talked, and I'm going to end with I'm going to end with this. We talked when we uh, several weeks ago we were studying the book of Ephesians or nope Philippians. Wow, we spent eight weeks there. I don't even remember which book it was. We we're studying the book of Ephesians. Oh man, I did it again. <laughs> I turned through it and read it and said it. I can't do it. Philippians. We were in the book of Philippians, and uh, I, I, su- I suggested that in, I believe it's chapter 4, yeah, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the same concept of what he gives here in Matthew chapter 6. It's the same concept that he gives in Colossians chapter 3. That when we're struggling with feeling like we've got to control where our provision comes from, the answer to that, because what's, what's the result of that? If I feel like it's all on me, <laughs> um, I know, especially for the, for the men in the room that like like if you you feel the weight of providing for your family or, or you know whoever if you're if you're the primary like income earner for the family you feel the weight of that that can produce some anxiety sometimes and the Bible says that that the answer to the, the result of of a greedy heart is anxiety because the greedy heart says it's all on me. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this myself. But, but that produce, that only ends in anxiety. What's the greedy person's greatest fear? That he's gonna lose all the stuff he acquired. It produces anxiety. And the answer to anxiety is 
trust in God. Philippians, we, we talked about how like that, this was the recipe for peace that we talked about. It says, by, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Dependence on God is the answer. Trust is the cure for the anxiety that is the result of greed. Colossians chapter 3, I feel like, really does sum this up. And we read these verses. Um, Colossians chapter 3 is famously the, the passage where he's talking about put off these things, put on these other things. And he says in verse 5, put off, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. And then later on he says, put on then, in verse 12, put on then, and has this list of things. And at the end he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A thankful heart and a, a, a I'm not going to say attitude of gratitude, don't say it. Um, a thankful heart is not possible if you have a greedy heart. Because the greedy heart appreciates who or what? Me. Myself. I'm the one that acquired these things. I'm the one that worked hard for this. I earned this. I stored this up. I saved this. What have you? It was all on me. Who do I have to thank? I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, which I love that expression because it's not possible. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. It's, it's a self-defeating thing. It, it should be this perfect picture of, of why we need help. But the thankful, the, the thankful heart is only possible with a heart that depends on someone other than yourself. And the only one we can truly depend on is God. So I will land the plane there. You may unfasten your seatbelts. Feel free to move about the cabin. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we, as we close that, our time together. Heavenly Father God, thank you that we can trust you. That we can depend on you. We can even bring our requests and our, our needs before you and thank you for them even before you have provided them because we know we are that sure you will provide for our needs. God, you've demonstrated over and over in your scripture how you will provide for the needs of your people. But God, more than anything, the entire scripture points to you and your provision of our greatest need, which isn't food, it isn't water, it isn't shelter, it isn't clothing. God, it's, a, it's our spiritual our, our spiritual condition. We, we are all spiritually dead without Christ. God, I thank you that our spiritual reconciliation with you does not depend on ourselves. God, we could never meet your standard. We could never be good enough. But you knew this. You made a way. Thank you for Jesus. 
we depend on him for our salvation, may we also depend on you for our, our provision in all other areas. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.